If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 127. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing your options when it comes to a situation where your income is just not enough in order to pay off your liabilities. What are your options when it comes to this situation? Well, you'll be glad to know that there are plenty of options if you ever come across this unfortunate situation. COVID lockdowns has pushed many business owners, sole traders and individual employees into reassessing their liabilities and assets and income expense situation. Unfortunately, some people, despite getting help from the government as much as possible, have had to file for bankruptcy. We will specifically talk about bankruptcy in this episode, and in the next episodes, we'll discuss some other options which you may want to consider. Now, for those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The first one is to be educated, and that is to improve your financial literacy. And that leads to the second aim, to be empowered with the knowledge that you gain. That way, you can take that knowledge, and when you speak to your credentialed financial advisor or accountant, you can speak at a level that both of you can understand each other. And step three, or the third aim, is to be entertained from this podcast channel. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make to your appropriate advisors after listening to one of my episodes. Now, if you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is you've got to pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income at least and put it aside because you're the most important person in your life. Step two is you've got to invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. Now, for me, I understand the stock market and index funds, so I just invest in index funds. Step three is wherever possible, you need to reinvest dividends. The power of compounding by reinvesting dividends is phenomenal. Step four is you've got to do it for the long term. Now, a lot of people say five, 10, 15 years is that long term. In my humble opinion, it is not. I would want you to at least do it for 20 years, 30 years, if not 40 years plus. Of course, the longer you do it, the better it is for you. Which means the earlier you start, the better it is for you. And step five is wherever possible, automate the investments and automate the steps as much as you possibly can. That is my favorite step because with automation, you're more likely to follow the plan and you're less likely to forget to invest. Now, if you just do these five simple steps over the long term, you're more likely to end up with more money than you'll ever need. Remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before I go on to the main topic of bankruptcy, I have a question from Dr. Zed who asks, 
Hi, Dev. Although strictly not a financial question, but I'll ask anyway, I'm a GP who's currently working as a contractor in a practice. Currently, I get 70% of my billings. The way it's structured is all billings is taken by the practice who distribute my 70% every fortnight. I've noted some GPs accept 100% of their income, then pay a fortnightly or monthly service fee to the practice. If that was done, then the practice invoices the GP just like any other regular bill. Why is there such a difference and what is the gold standard? That's a really good question, Dr. Z. Um, But let me preface my thoughts on this topic by stating I do not do any private practice, general practice anymore. I used to, but I left that field a while ago now, some years ago, and I'm currently entirely in the public system. So I just get paid a wage. I'm a pay-as-you-go employee, just like a lot of other Australians. So it's a lot easier for me uh, when it comes to income, saving, investing, etc., because I kind of know exactly what's coming into my bank account. My income is completely stable. It's not variable. It doesn't change week to week very much at all. Now, you are right in that the majority of GPs get paid a set percentage of their total income fortnightly or weekly or monthly, whatever time frame it is. Now, the problem with this system is some practices, unfortunately, do not treat their contractors very well. I mean, I see it on the online forums all the time, particularly the more junior doctors, uh, whether they're registrars or early consultants, early fellows. The majority of practices do the right thing, though, and, um, you know, do not delay any payments, okay? But any delays in payments received is essentially just opportunity cost for the GP, Now, personally, if I was entering general practice again in terms of private billing, I would probably negotiate a 100% income model, then ask them to invoice the service fee fortnightly, which I can then pay them. And you've got to check your contracts. Uh, I'd encourage all doctors or just in general, I think, everyone, if you're signing up to an employing agreement or contractor agreement, I think it's really important to check the contract. I mean, the number of doctors that I speak to Um, that either don't have a contract or just haven't read their contract or just don't know what their entitlements are. Um, And I used to manage a team of doctors, 14, 15 doctors in the team, and I used to tell them all the time, check your contract, you're eligible for this, you're entitled for this, because a lot of them wouldn't care or just wouldn't know. And a lot of them didn't even know that they had an active contract or not. And some of them have really switched on and really, you know, chased it up on their behalf. Now, I also looked into the problems with your payment system in that there is a risk that the ATO or SRO sees you as an employee, which risks the practice owner considerably, especially if they don't pay for entitlements such as annual leave, sick leave, superannuation, etc. Of course, the tax department will also miss out on their 5% payroll tax as well. Interestingly, I use the ATO tool and no, I'm not calling the ATO a tool, so don't sue me, ATO, which is useful to determine if you're an employee or a contractor. They actually have an online tool that you can go and plug in some details about yourself. So using that tool in your situation, it actually comes up as that you're an employee in your practice. Now, it says that there are some things you need to do for an employee. Super, pay-as-you-go withholding tax, FBT if relevant, Uh, which is fringe benefits tax, leave entitlements, and payroll tax. Now, this is a really murky situation. I've heard time and time again the structure of how you get paid, what your contract states, determines if you're a contractor or not. 
So I would perhaps have the discussion with your practice and perhaps seek some ATO or SRO opinion or maybe speak to your accountant or speak to your MDO. I'm not sure whether you're covered by that through your MDO. You may be entitled to more things than what you're actually getting. And maybe your practice is not even aware of this. And, you know, there's been considerable experience online where some doctors and some practices have been sent letters by, you know, the tax department or the SRO department to sort of say, sorry, you're considered as an employee, which means the practice owners and the, you know, people that actually pay you that contracting fee are now liable to um, pay you all the additional benefits as well. So it's really important to, you know, nut it out early and make sure that it's all written properly in the contract and make sure you get appropriate uh, credentialed advice on this. Now, just a bit of a, again, a note, I'm not a tax agent, so I can't provide taxation advice. Uh, I can't provide legal advice on these sort of matters, okay? So uh, I think you need to do your due diligence on this topic. So my basic sort of message to you, Dr. Z, is that when you use that ATO tool and, and plugged in some figures for yourself, um, yeah, it sort of come up as you are an employee. So uh, I hope that answers your question and something to think about for a lot of doctors out there who are in the exact same position, or you might not even be a doctor. You might be a contractor contracting for a particular company. Um, I think you need to start thinking about what that means in terms of what your relationship is with that parent company. Now to the main topic. Now, you may wish to know when it comes to bankruptcy, um, there are actually four main options, um, you know, prior to you going bankrupt to consider if your liabilities becomes a bit too much and you can't service your debt. The first option is called temporary debt protection or TDP. The second option is a debt agreement. The third option is a personal insolvency agreement. And the fourth option is bankruptcy, which we'll be focusing on this episode. So what is bankruptcy? It's basically a legal term where if you can't pay your debts, you can apply for a bankruptcy where you're declared unable to pay your debts. Now, there are rules about this and it does not deem you unable to pay all of your debts. And that's really important here. It depends on what type of debts you have. It allows you to make a fresh start in life. So a a second chance in your financial life. So you know, there are some pros and cons about going bankrupt, believe it or not. Now, you can apply for bankruptcy voluntarily called a voluntary bankruptcy, or you may be forced to apply for one, or others can take action against you to make you bankrupt. And usually the others are the creditors chasing their money that you owe them. Now, if you're forced to become bankrupt, this is called a sequestration order. Now, there are two main terms you need to be familiar for this episode and also for the next episode, which I'll be focusing on debt agreements, etc. And that is a debtor. This is the person who owes money and a creditor. And this is the person who owed the money, uh, who is owed the money, beg your pardon. So let's use an example to clarify these terms so you're very clear. Amy buys a new car using a personal loan from her bank. The loan is $10,000 and the bank is called ABC Bank. Amy is the debtor and ABC Bank is the creditor. How long does a bankruptcy actually last when you go bankrupt? Um, Well, strangely, it lasts for three years and one day. Now, I don't really know why that extra one day, 
But I suspect there's some sort of rule or legislation or reasoning behind this, but I couldn't actually find out why that extra one day. Um, And it's usually based on the day which your application of bankruptcy has been accepted. So, you know, you need to formally apply to become bankrupt. Once the bankruptcy ends, it's called a discharge from bankruptcy rule. So who actually manages bankruptcies in Australia? In Australia, the Australian Financial Security Authority, the AFSA, AFSA, they manage all of the bankruptcies of all individuals. Now, the bankruptcy of companies, though, is slightly different. And I won't go into this uh, much in this episode because it's usually managed by ASIC, which is the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. So if you're listening from an overseas country, you need to check with your local authorities as to who actually manages bankruptcies in your country or jurisdiction. Now, what happens if a bankruptcy application is accepted? So, you know, you fill out a bankruptcy application, you go to submit it, and when it's accepted, that's the date of your bankruptcy. Well, basically, AFSA will appoint a trustee to administer your bankruptcy, or you can get your own trustee if you want to, who is actually registered. Um, It's up to you. So you have that choice. Now, if you want to know more about trust, refer to my episode on trust, which is episode 61. But basically, a trustee is someone who upholds that they will do the things in your best interest with you being the beneficiary of the process. What are the obligations when you become bankrupt? Now, it's really important that you provide all of the correct information on your assets and liabilities to your trustee. This is not the time to lie because there are severe penalties if you did that. Then your trustee notifies your creditors uh, that you're bankrupt, and this allows you some breathing space and actually prevents your creditors from harassing you further. Um, And your trustee will then assess your situation and may sell some of your assets to cover your liabilities, or your trustee will organise some compulsory payments depending on your cash flow situation. So basically what you're doing is you're kind of handing over some level of control to your trustee who is on your side, but also is designed to help the creditors as well to make sure that they're sort of the middleman to make sure that the situation is controlled um, and things don't escalate too much unnecessarily. So what sort of debts can you actually, you know, can bankruptcy actually help you with? Now, you know, bankruptcy is something that you do for severe financial consequences. It's not really a get out of jail free card. So you still be able to, you know, liable to pay off as much of your debt as possible and sometimes be forced to make compulsory payments. Uh, But bankruptcy really only covers most unsecured debts. So what's an unsecured debt? Well, these debts have no collateral backing you're not attaching anything of value in return to borrowing money. So some examples are credit cards, store cards, gas, electricity, and most utility bills, unpaid rent, uh, as a lot of you know, landlords found out during COVID-19 last year, bank overdrive fees, medical, legal, and accounting fees. Uh, so yes, medical bills are usually unsecured. So plenty of doctors come across this where a situation where their patients simply just don't pay, whether they go see a doctor and, and just walk out of the consulting room and just walk out, um, they don't actually go to the reception to pay the bills or they have an operation and they don't pay the gap fees. Uh, it's not actually not uncommon and they're unsecured debts. Um, now, there are some sort of debts which are definitely not covered under bankruptcy laws and that is your HEX or your HELP debt. 
uh, any debt that you incur after your bankruptcy begins, any child support, any penalties or fines like traffic infringements or court-imposed fines, and any debt which hasn't been fully agreed to the full value of, called an unliquidated debt. Um, So these types of debts are just not bankruptable. Now, there are some in-betweeners. So what about debts which are in-betweeners, like ATO debts, Centrelink debts, uh, you know, let's not forget the famous robo-debt calls last few years, victims of crime debt, or toll fines, etc. Can these be foregone? Now, you need to specifically ask each of these creditors to see if there will be, okay? There is no hard and fast rule about this. Uh, to be honest, I don't think the ATO or Centrelink will easily forego the debts. Um, the last thing you want is an ATO debt. So just be very careful about dealing with government agencies because you know they've got a lot of backing, a lot of power as well. So those are the unsecured debts. So what are secured debts then? Well, that's basically things like mortgages, car loans with a car as a security, rent-to-buy schemes with the furniture as security, for example. So can these be foregone? Um, well, the answer is no. Uh, in the case of your mortgage, the bank has every right to take possession of the home, sell it off, recoup their costs, and then impose whatever debt is left over for you to pay. Now, this is called a shortfall. In some circumstances, the shortfall debt may be wiped off, but it depends on the situation and the creditor involved. So let's use an example, right? Amy is a chef earning $60,000 per year, and unfortunately due to COVID-19 and restaurant closures, which, you know, currently I'm in the state of Victoria, where we are in stage four lockdown, um, and New South Wales is somewhat in stage three and a bit lockdown. And there are other states like um, ACT is also in lockdown as well. So, you know, you know, restaurant closures, not having diners in is a real problem. So this is a potentially a real life scenario that a lot of people are going through right now. So it's a very, very difficult scenario. But it highlights what sort of debts are secured and what are unsecured and what can be bankruptable. Um, so she earns about $60,000 and due to restaurant closes, um, you know, she's come across some hard times. So she's now unable to pay off any of her debts. Uh, she has $6,000 in credit card debt, $10,000 in unsecured personal loans, and about $1,000 in all utility bills, which are overdue. Despite receiving a rental reduction from a landlord, she's now four months behind in her rent payment. She has a car loan worth $8,000 with a car as a security. So in this case, even if Amy applies for bankruptcy, her car loan may not be wiped off. Everything else potentially can be. The bank who gave her the car loan can take possession of the car and sell it and then apply any proceeds against their car loan. And whatever the difference is called a shortfall, and she can perhaps ask the creditor to consider wiping that off by filing for bankruptcy. But she can't get rid of, you know, the car, the debt associated with the car, but potentially with bankruptcy, it may help her with getting rid of the $6,000 in credit card debt, $10,000 in unsecured personal loan debt, and $1,000 in utility bills, and also all that unpaid rent as well. Now, what about debts in joint names? Uh, A lot of people buy homes in their joint names, um, a lot of people buy cars in their joint names. And usually, if one person becomes bankrupt, then the other person becomes 100% liable for the debt. Um, so, you know, if, if you have a guarantor on the loan, for example, then the guarantor also becomes 100% liable for the debt. So if you're a parent, take note, 
If you're considering acting as a guarantor for your child's loans, like buying a home, etc., it does not, you know, come risk-free. It does have some consequences if they can't pay their mortgage. What about if you have debt overseas? Um, can you, you know, potentially include that in your bankruptcy? And the answer is yes, you can cover your overseas debts in your bankruptcy, but this prohibits overseas creditors from pursuing you for their money as long as you're in the country. But it does not cover you if you travel to their country. They can still come after you if you did that. And that, that would just be a bit weird, um, you know, if you covered an overseas debt in your Australian um, bankruptcy and then decided to just travel there. Because as long as you're in Australian territory, then Australian laws apply. If you're not here, then the Australian government, you know, has, can, can do very little for you, if uh, particularly for financial issues. Now, what about, um, you know, if, you, if the assets that you own, for example, doesn't cover the liabilities to get rid of it? I mean, we talked about it a little bit. The trustee will sell off whatever sellable assets to cover the debts owed. Then it just comes up with a compulsory payment plan to deal with a shortfall. So, you know, the creditor is not going to, you know, go away. I mean, these people, you know, rightfully so, want their money back. And this is why potentially debt is a double-edged sword. I mean, you've got to be very careful about how much you borrow and what you borrow and what sort of debt that you have. Now, what is a compulsory payment plan then? Well, basically, being bankrupt doesn't mean you can't continue working, okay? So you can continue working, you can continue earning an income, but there are some certain rules to abide by. So generally speaking, you need to inform your trustee about your employment and your income, uh, and if you stop working, you also need to let them know. So if your financial situation changes, then you need to let them know. If you earn more or less, you also need to let them know. So you can't hide income that you might have from your trustee. And compulsory payments occur when you reach an after-tax income which exceeds a certain threshold or certain amount. And there is no limit on how much you can actually earn or save. So what are those income thresholds beyond which, um, you know, you need to let your trustee know and start paying compulsory payments towards any outstanding debt? Now, there's actually a big table about this. You can go to AFSA and actually find out. But essentially, if you're earning $59,559 after tax per year, and this is indexed every year due to inflation, then you kind of need to pay some compulsory payments. And if you have dependents, and this threshold increases up to 89000 after tax, you can have up to four dependents. Uh, and I think this is actually quite generous. I mean, to earn 89000 after tax, you know, clearly you're earning over $100,000. Uh, up until then, you kind of don't need to pay any compulsory payments. And of course, there are lots of thresholds and rules to learn about. And the AFSA website has a detailed table about this. And I hope you never have to use that table, but it's useful to know that there are some obligations if you make a lot of money and you file for bankruptcy and there's shortfalls after selling your, you know, liabilities to pay off your debts, uh, sorry, your assets to pay off your debts, um, you know, the creditor can still come after you and you need to pay compulsory payments. So what's the big deal about bankruptcy? What are some of the consequences of bankruptcy? Um, look, your trustee is your lifeline. Um, they will be the middle person in order to ensure the best outcome when it comes to assets and liabilities. But money is money. Your trustee doesn't know you from a bar of soap technically. So you can't say that this particular car or that particular furniture or that particular item has sentimental value. So you can't say, please don't sell it because it has sentimental value. I mean, they will sell it. 
It doesn't work like that. Money has no emotion. And your trustee is unlikely to take into account the sentimental value of your items before selling it. And creditors, frankly, don't care. You know, there's a, there's a great saying about money. I mean, don't cry for money because money never cries for you. It's really, really important to understand that when it comes to bankruptcy and debts and finances in general. Now, bankruptcy doesn't cover all debts. We talked about it. Secure debts still need to be paid. And bankruptcy means you can't get certain jobs, especially in the field of finance, which makes completely sense, right? I mean, you can't be bankrupt and be a financial advisor. Um, it also affects your ability to travel overseas. A lot of people don't know this. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you need consent. So during that period of bankruptcy of three years and one day, you need written consent if you want to go overseas, even for a holiday, your trustee considers all aspects of the travel before actually approving or not approving. So it's not as if you can just go on a Bali holiday if you wanted to. Your name then permanently appears in the National Insolvency Index. It's basically a public register that you can log in and have a look and the following details will appear. Your name, your date of birth, your residential address, an occupation that you disclose in your application. Any previous names and any aliases, if known. The type of proceedings, the start date and the AFSA administration number. The name and contact details of the trustee or administrator of the proceeding as well also appears in a public register. And the current status of the proceeding, you know, whether you're discharged from the bankruptcy or not. Now, you can actually hide your details in some circumstances like personal safety issues. Uh, You know, for example, if you owe money to the mob, It's not a great idea to have your details in a public register, but I suspect the mob has various other ways of getting their money back. But, you know, if your life is in danger or some personal safety, then you can hide those information not to be disclosed to the public register. But you need to apply for that. Um, The other consequence is getting future loans will be affected, right? I mean, this is a natural byproduct of declaring bankruptcy. Credit agencies keep records of your bankruptcy for up to five years, or two years after your bankruptcy period ends, whichever is later. Now, what are the things that you can keep during your bankruptcy? Well, generally speaking, you can keep some you know, tools, for example, up to a certain value if it helps in your capacity to earn an income. And you can actually keep your car up to a certain value if it helps in your capacity to earn an income. So there are some certain things that you can keep in order to live a life. I mean, you know, you're not destined for being homeless if you become bankrupt. So there are some rules about that. And when does your bankruptcy end? We talked about three years and one day um, after your bankruptcy is accepted in writing by AFSA. It's not when you want to go bankrupt, it's when you actually get accepted. Then most of the restrictions are annulled and basically you're technically a free bird. Now, you can borrow money, you can travel overseas after that. This all depends, of course, on your individual circumstances, whether people would actually lend you money. Um, Because I think that public register about bankruptcies is permanent. So I'm not sure whether people actually lend you money, but technically if they did, then you can borrow money. And there are some professions, uh, you know, which may be affected permanently for bankruptcies and you need to check with your organisation first. Now, I actually looked into this, which I found really fascinating. Some of the interesting facts about which professions may be affected. So accountants, solicitors, super fund trustees, tax agents, travel agents, which is interesting. Um, Secondhand vehicle dealers, I don't know why you can't become a second-hand vehicle dealer if you go bankrupt, but there you go. 
real estate license holders, pretty pretty reasonable there. MPs, Member of Parliaments. If you go bankrupt, you can never be a Member of Parliament. I wish that rule existed in other countries. Police, you can't be a police officer. Uh, liquor license holders, that's interesting. Escort agencies, again, interesting. Gas fitter, you can't be a gas fitter if you went bankrupt. Uh, any sort of financial brokers, um, any company directors, electricians. You can't be an electrician if you went bankrupt. So uh, again, it's it's interesting. And any defence force personnel, you can't be in the defence force. So I found those ones really interesting. I mean, these are not. This is not the exhaustive list of all the professions that you can't be. I just found those professions really fascinating. Um, once you declare bankruptcy, it affects your ability to get that job. That's about it for this episode. Now. Basically, going bankrupt is a big deal. It's not as easy as, you know, get out of jail card. It literally puts you in financial jail for three years and one day and possibly for the rest of your life. So think twice before going bankrupt, which means think twice before borrowing money. If you don't have debt, you can't go bankrupt. A lot of people make it seem like leverage and debt is such an easy game. When things go right, it's great. When things go wrong, it can have lifelong devastating impacts on you, your family, and your livelihood. And in a couple of people have reached out to me saying that they're on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, uh, you know, a couple of uh, people that had businesses and, uh, and it's just devastating. So, uh, and in fact, that's how this episode came about because I wanted to look into what it means for some people who are staring down the barrel of a bankruptcy. What are the other options? Which we will consider in the next episode, some of the alternatives to bankruptcy that, you know, some people may want to try beforehand. And personally for me, debt, I generally don't like it. I don't like this concept of good debt versus bad debt. I just think being debt-free is a good thing. Try and be consumer debt-free, definitely. Don't borrow money for consumer items. You know, don't use, you know, you know, afterpay and zip and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I think it's just disastrous. If you don't have money to buy something today, don't buy it. Save up the money and buy it in a few months' time. It's not a radical concept. So that's my little rant about bankruptcy and debt. Remember to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using or leave a five-star rating on all of the platforms. That's even better. Make sure you leave a positive review as well. That means actually log in and actually say something nice about the podcast channel because that actually helps... Um, you know, promote the podcast. The more ratings, the more reviews, the more people actually listen to it, the more eyes get in, you know, the more eyeballs the podcast gets. So on that note, I found this uh, great review uh, on Apple Podcast um, from Sector One, who says, finally on track, thanks so much to Dev for this highly informative podcast. Until I listened to one of these, I hadn't invested in the stock market. Now, finally on track with automated payments, investing regularly for the long term. That's fantastic. Thanks very much for the lovely feedback. Um, And I think it's really, really nice to hear people say that after listening to one of my episodes, it's really got them inspired to budget, to save, to pay themselves first, to fix their superannuation, to maximize their super and start investing. Now, I don't claim to know all the answers about money or investing, but if I can just get people to think about money and think about investing and think about, you know, paying off the debts or think about budgeting, that has a positive impact on their lives. And ironically, I would argue that I've probably had a positive impact 
on more lives through this free podcast channel than perhaps my medical career. You know, up to you know fifteen to sixteen thousand people listen to this episodes every single month. So that's a sizable population. Um, most of them in Australia, but a lot of them from New Zealand and overseas as well. And it's really pleasing and nice and really gratifying to know that what you're doing as a podcaster is actually making a difference in someone's life. And that difference is, you know, can be major or minor. And I speak to a lot of people every single week. I get a lot of messages every single week about people's personal financial situation. And it's really nice to know that be able, to be able to do that, I think it's a real honor. So I really appreciate um, the feedback from Sector One and all the other people that have you know, provided feedback and also people that contact me on a weekly basis. Now, remember to like the DevRaga Facebook page, shout out to questions and comments, and of course, topic suggestions. Please share this channel with family, friends on CastBox, Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever podcasting app that you use. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take that 20% of after-tax income at least and put it aside because you're the most important person in your life. Learn about debt, treat it with respect, and learn about bankruptcy. It may be the only way out for some people. This is Devraka Personal Finance, episode 127. And as always, it is now more important than ever to one, get vaccinated, and two, look after each other and stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.